I really need to thank you and Sarah for being there for me. You guys could have easily said, this isn't my problem. This is your problem. Your lack of due diligence is entirely your fault and not done anything at all. But you guys have been there for me every step of the way. You responded on Voxer at 342 in the morning. I know it might have been 642 depending on where you were, but honestly, who works at that time? So just the fact that you guys were there for me, I appreciate it so much. Welcome to the Creating Wealth Show with Jason Hartman. You're about to learn a new slant on investing, some exciting techniques and fresh new approaches to the world's most historically proven asset class that will enable you to create more wealth and freedom than you ever thought possible. Jason is a genuine self-made multimillionaire who's actually been there and done it. He's a successful investor, lender, developer, and entrepreneur who's owned properties in 11 states, had hundreds of tenants and been involved in thousands of real estate transactions. This program will help you follow in Jason's footsteps on the road to your financial independence day. You really can do it. And now, here's your host, Jason Hartman, with the complete solution for real estate investors. Welcome to episode 1570, 1570, and because we have an election coming up right around the corner, so I hope you are ready to make good choices at the polling place and be careful voting by mail. There's already all sorts of fraud. There's already lots of lost ballots. You know, I would say you got to go to the good old polling place. And, you know, why are we voting for mail? Can't we just do it online? I mean, can we do it through our phones? We're still using the post office? I mean, uh, ridiculous. But really, we shouldn't be doing that. We should be going and voting in person. So yeah, the voter fraud and the negligence is rampant already. I'm sure you've heard the stories in the media. So I don't need to cover them for you. But because it is a 10th show and an election is right around the corner, what does that mean? Well, that means our guest today, he has written a book where he has graded the presidents. Yes, given them grades. What do you think of that? We'll get to him in a few minutes here. But first, I have to tell you, I am so excited about our upcoming event on Saturday, Pandemic Investing. Go to pandemicinvesting.com if you don't have your ticket already. It is a virtual live event. And so I will be presenting Saturday from 11 a.m. Eastern until about 5 o'clock Eastern. And then we'll probably do a happy hour afterwards. Why the heck not? I could certainly use a, uh, a decompression uh, cocktail afterwards. Get ready for happy hour after the event. And it's just going to be a lot of fun. And we're going to gain a lot of insights. I have uh, data galore. If you like data, if you like charts, if you like graphs, if you like real, well, I was going to say science, but I guess I'll say statistics, then this is the event for you, our pandemic investing one day class. So that'll all be online, super easy to attend from anywhere on planet Earth or even the International Space Station. Yes, they can attend as well, although I hear their uh, connection is not very good. I was watching an inter interesting video yesterday about how they are building out the planetary internet. 
for the entire solar system. It was quite fascinating. You know, with, with all the crazy stuff we've got going on in the world, I still contend it is an amazing time to be alive, a truly amazing time to be alive. The technology is absolutely incredible. So uh, fascinating stuff. But hey, I'm looking at an article that Sarah, uh, you know, Sarah, she's one of our great team members, and she shared this. It's from Yahoo Finance, and it is entitled, U.S. will become a renter nation. Yes, the U.S. will become a renter nation. Rising home prices are keeping prospective buyers out of home ownership. Now, I just have to tell you, on Saturday, you are going to get some whole new data on that. Are house prices really high? Or are they about the same? Or are they cheap? I'm going to show you. I've done my own independent study. Did not get this from anywhere. It came out on my own head. I did the math, I did the research, I got the data, I got the charts, I got the graphs, I did the calculations, and I'm going to present this to you on Saturday at the Pandemic Investing event. So pandemicinvesting.com, get your ticket for that, be sure to. So anyway, the article citing the typical soundbite media, non-intellectual media that we have to suffer through in this world, says home prices are high. So we'll see about that. You'll see Saturday. It's uh, going to be really interesting. Mark my word on that one for sure. Okay, so high demand, low supply, and low mortgage rates have driven up prices to historic highs this summer, the article goes on to say. And for every $1,000 price increase, some 150,000 potential buyers are priced out of a home purchase keeping them in the rental market. Hey, dear listeners, haven't I been saying for the last 10 years? And then I did a renewal on my tenure. <laughs> I did a renewal. I said, the demographics coming at the rental housing market in the next 10 years, saying this back in 2010, are nothing short of phenomenal. And then now, in 2020, I have renewed my saying. I'm going with the same exact saying. The demographics coming at the rental housing market over the next 10 years are phenomenal. They are just phenomenal. And here you go. Here's, here's more on that. Homeownership is still dead in this country because the only people that are buying homes right now are the people that have equity, great credit, and a job. Multifamily housing investor Grant Cardone, a prior guest on the show and a guy who's actually been accused of some scamminess lately, but uh, you know. You can go look that up online. I'm not going into it here. Told Yahoo Finance. So yeah, you know, home prices, uh, they usually dip in the fall. That's true. The article talks about that. Cites realtor.com. And that's definitely true. I think everything was just pushed back a little bit. COVID-1984, of course, accelerated a lot of things, but it also put the housing market on pause during the most intense part of it. And now... It is October, <laughs> just a couple weeks before the election here, and we are seeing the spring housing season. <laughs> so everything is all messed up this year. Boy, 2020, wow. 
What a year it's been. What a year it's been for sure. Yeah, the article goes on to cite NerdWallet. They've been on the show too. And just talks about how lenders are tougher and they are really being really strict in their underwriting, which by the way, you ought to appreciate that's a hassle when you go to buy an investment property through our network. You go to jasonhartman.com slash properties and you do that. And I know it's more difficult to get that financing, but it's more difficult for everybody else too. And they remember that the thing in life is the person who is always willing to jump the higher barrier to entry. That's the person who is enriched. It really, really is. So yeah, I think, um, I think you'll, uh, you'll really obviously benefit from this over the next 10 years. The demographics phenomenal, phenomenal, phenomenal coming at the housing market. It's truly amazing. Sadly, another uh, article I was looking at, uh, this one from Newser, talking about how millennials lag well behind baby boomers in amassing wealth. Now, check this out. This is going to blow your mind. You're ready for the statistic? It says, the generation controls only 4.6% of U.S. wealth Well, boomers, their parents, control 53% of U.S. wealth. Well, that's not as bad as it sounds, of course, because they are much older than them, and they should be controlling more wealth. They've had more time to figure it out and to save money and hopefully delay gratification. And they've also been through uh, several boom cycles in the market. But don't worry, the millennials will have their boom cycles too. It's an amazing time to be alive. Don't forget that. Now, Generation X, my generation, the small little generation nobody even thinks about or pays attention to, the lonely little generation, Gen X, that's my group, controls 25% of the wealth of the country. And the silent generation, those older folks, They control 17%. It's pretty amazing the way it's divided. But what the article fails to mention, and this is what the media, they never paint the full picture, of course, right? They never paint the full picture. They fail to mention that that 53% in the hands of the baby boomers and the 17% in the hands of the silent generation will all be passed down and inherited by the millennials. <laughs> so when you're thinking, when you hear these politicians talking about the death tax, the estate tax, you know, just keep that in mind because there are some huge special interests here at play in terms of this. So a lot more to cover this week, but especially on Saturday. So be sure to go to pandemicinvesting.com and join us on Saturday for our event online from the comfort of your home with your popcorn in hand, your glass of uh, wine in hand, whatever you like, your cup of coffee, whatever makes you happy. But it's going to be a great event. I really enjoyed doing Meet the Masters online. That was just, you guys were you were so awesome. It was just a really great event. And this event is an easy, short event. It's uh, a lot less expensive, it's less expensive for us to put on. Uh, so uh, it's going to be great. So we look forward to seeing you Saturday. Go to pandemicinvesting.com. You get your free mini book 
and uh, also uh, get your ticket for Saturday's event. All right, without further ado, let's get to our guest today. It's a 10th episode show, so we're not talking about real estate investing directly, but we're talking about grading the presidents. What grade do they get? How do they fare historically? A lot of times a president is looked at one way. I mean, you've heard the saying, right? Not that this applies to presidents, but maybe it does a little bit. No profit is ever revered in their own time, right? You've heard that, of course. Uh, that's a, a famous cliche. And, you know, a lot of times uh, a president is looked at very differently from the perspective of history. You know, add 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, go past that presidency. How do we think of Reagan today? How do we think of Carter? How do we think of Ford? How do we think of uh, Slick Willie Bill Clinton? You know, whatever, you know, the Bush, the Bush dynasty, look, America should not have dynasties. Let's not have dynasty family presidents here in this country, uh, hopefully. Yeah, you know, history really does, does give it a different perspective. So I think this will be interesting, too. All right. Here is our guest. It's my pleasure to welcome Robert Spencer to the show. He is the author of Rating America's Presidents. Let's find out who was the best for America, uh, who's overrated, and let's just take a dive into this. Perfect time to do it with another election at hand. Robert, welcome. How are you? Just great, thanks. How are you? Good. And you're coming to us from Sherman Oaks, California, near where I grew up in Los Angeles. So good to have you. Talk to us about the methodology for this book and the ratings, because you seem to be, if I may, an equal opportunity critic. You have a lot of criticism leveled at Republicans and Democrats alike. What was your methodology? Where did you come from uh, when, when doing this book? Yeah, this is not a Republican book or a Democratic book. This is an America First book. Now, America First is a phrase that has been widely misinterpreted, widely misrepresented. And a lot of people associate it with nativism, with racism, with anti-Semitism. None of these things are necessary. The real definition of America first comes from President Trump, where he said, I'm not the president of the world. I'm the president of the United States. I'm going to put the American people first, right. not the people of any other nation. And I would expect every head of state to put his people first, of not course. Of any other nation. It's common sense, yeah. but it's been ignored. It's been controverted. It's been ridiculed. It's been rejected really since before World War II. And by the way, if I if I may interject here, give you a little more to, to go down this path with, it's interesting that the left could make such a ridiculous argument because America is the country of immigrants, right? And they say that all the time. That's their own words. But we all know, you know, I don't disagree with it. It's, it's true. But, but what's interesting is if you are America first, then you are for that tossed salad or melting pot, depending on how you want to look at it. So why would that be bad if you're thinking from the left-hand perspective? Yeah, it's completely inconsistent. Yeah. And that's actually something that comes through in the book, that the left's position has never been about a rational argument, but it's always been mm -hmm. about appeals, demagoguery, appeals to emotions and feelings, without anything to back them up. I think the primary example of this, and one of the most common, is the idea of the people. 
Mm-hmm. And it goes back to William Jennings Bryan, the three times failed Democratic presidential candidate. I discuss him in the book. His 1908 campaign slogan was, shall the people rule? And the Democrats have portrayed themselves, and the left in general has portrayed itself as the champion of the people, the common folk, as opposed to the rich who are supposedly all Republican. Now, the reality, though, is when they say the people, they mean big government. They mean, when, when, when Brian said, shall the people rule, he meant he wanted to nationalize industries and put them under the control of the government. That's not the people. That's the communist equation, like in the People's Republic of North Korea and the other people's republics that we see around the world and have seen. That are so incorrectly named, by the way. (laughs) Saying they're for the people could be, nothing could be further from the truth, but yeah. Yeah, so this is a, a book about which presidents were good for America, good for Americans. They made America safer, stronger, and more prosperous than it was when they became president. That mm-hmm. was my primary criteria, and it's on that basis that I judged every last one of the presidents in here. It's a lot of research to understand and interpret all of these administrations. Uh, what do we have? 45 of them now, I think. Were you a presidential historian before the book, or did you do all the research for the book? What's your background? Well, I did do all the research for the book. I have not been published before as a presidential historian, but this was actually the first thing I got interested in as a child. I got very interested in American history and particularly in the presidents. I could reel them all off in order by the time I was about six or seven. (laughs) And, uh, you know, it was just something I was fascinated with as a child. I never really thought I would write a book about it, but the left's war on history over the last few years It's come out now in this summer in a virulent way, but it's been brewing for quite some time that the left wants to make us ashamed of our history, ashamed of our heritage, ashamed of being Americans, and then we're more easily conquered. And it was that that made me think, well, you know, I have all this information. I remember once I was at a speaking at a club in Philadelphia and was with some of the other speakers after the event. And I saw that there were a bunch of presidents on the wall. I started telling stories about them to them. And they were saying, these are very entertaining. This is all very interesting. You should write a book about it. So that and the left's war on history made me think, now's the time to get this out, to be an antidote to that hatred of history, that we hatred of American history that we're seeing everywhere. Yeah, there's certainly no shortage, sadly, of revisionist history going on. I hate to sound like I'm supporting one side or the other here, but I'll just use the words, and I don't remember exactly what he said, but if you you listen, I you know, I watched both acceptance speeches from the DNC and the RNC. In Trump's speech, he said, you know, the other side would have you believe, something to the effect of, the other side would have you believe that America is this wicked nation that must be punished for its sins. And this whole idea of like stolen land and all this stuff, tell me where on the map of the world that isn't true. Every country was formed by one power overcoming another. You know, they may both be ethnic Chinese, for example, or ethnic Russians or or whatever, but they were still one side overcoming another, usually with bloodshed, violence, force. It's like they they want to just make the the settlers that came over and developed the country, uh, these evil people, and those who were here were like perfect. They didn't you know, they didn't scalp anybody. They didn't do a bunch of terrible things on their own. I mean, I'm not saying either side was right or wrong. I'm just saying this is history. 
Okay, this is the way the entire world has always worked. So why is it that the U.S. has this special blame versus any other country? Lots of other countries had slavery. Uh, lots of other countries did all sorts of horrible things, had violent takeovers of to gain land and gain resources. Why is it that just the U.S. is so evil in this respect? I mean, this is the narrative of the left. Yeah, and this shows why we need history, because these kids that are out there burning up Kenosha, Wisconsin, and Portland, and Seattle, and all the rest of it, they don't have the slightest idea about history. It's very clear. And they probably really believe what they've been told, that America is this uniquely evil entity, and they ought to be ashamed to be in it. And if you were to ask them, well, what country has a better record? Are you aware that America actually led the way, along with Great Britain, to the global abolition of slavery? It didn't start in Iran or Pakistan that slavery was abolished. As a matter of fact, in a lot of Muslim countries, it's still going on because it's sanctioned in Islamic teaching. And are you aware that America has been the most magnanimous world power ever on the scene, the only one ever to rebuild its vanquished enemies and spend billions of dollars to do so? Are you aware of the fact that America is a uniquely non-corrupt, at least until recently, a uniquely non-corrupt political culture where the peaceful transition of power has been going on uninterrupted, and let's hope it continues, for far longer than it has ever gone on anywhere else in the world? They don't have the slightest idea of this. And this is one of the reasons why I wrote the book, because with the truth about history, we can reclaim the public discourse. Yeah, it's it's truly amazing that they just, they must know nothing about the Marshall Plan. America didn't get into World War II by its own desire or for its own motivation. It was simply a response to Japan. And then it finally entered the war. And then when it was done and it won the war, it could have just taken over and, you know, pillaged the world, right? But instead, it gave them all money to rebuild. <laughs> I mean, how, how can you get more altruistic than that as a, as a nation? It's just unbelievable. They have no concept of history. It is, is truly amazing. And this mostly is the millennial and sadly Generation Y now, gener or Generation Z generation coming up through college. It's just a brainwashing institution, these yeah. universities. It's yeah, amazing. they've been uh, filled with nonsense. The universities, as you say, are just centers for leftist indoctrination, essentially Antifa recruiting centers. They don't teach real history. And I hope people will realize it's coming out of the view that it's very important for us to know our history. It's not just about dusty old books and names and dates. It's about who we are as a people and what principles we should be willing to defend as a people and what principles have been established in the United States as being worthy of defense. And the, the young people today, they don't have any idea of any of this. It's truly amazing. Well, I want to get to that in a moment. But, you know, when you were mentioning a bunch of other countries and their history and, and current day slavery, not to mention women's rights. In Saudi Arabia, women were just recently allowed to drive, much yes. less anything else. It's they truly amazing. The house without their male guardian's permission, their husband or their brother or their father. 
to talk about America as being some uniquely difficult place for women is absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, when it, women dominate college entrance, yeah. uh, they dominate the college population, they dominate the master's degree population now. So where is the oppression everybody's talking about? Uh, you know, they, they never ask themselves, that, and we're t- speaking of the protesters, the leftists, they never ask themselves the, the question, compared to what? I mean, compared to what? You know, just give us, I'm not saying it's perfect. It's definitely not. But compared to what other country? Absolutely. I I mean, you just can't, uh, there's there's just not a better example of that kind of altruism and openness. And, uh, you know, I often ask myself, though, how is it that the left was able to revise history in the public schools and the universities you know, certainly we've got the NEA at the grade school level, the Nas- what Steve Forbes calls the National Extortion Association, the otherwise known as the National Education Association, you know, the, the teachers unions. And then in the universities, you've got these professors that work 12 hours a week that just are in an ivory tower, out of touch with reality. But why would they be 99% left-leaning? I mean, is it just the culture that it just kind of develops that way? Is no, this it because was a consciously you... chosen strategy. This is the long march through the institutions that began in the 1960s. In the 1960s, you may remember, there was the uh, free speech movement, so-called, in the University of California at Berkeley. Yeah. And, there were and, other... and by the way, I must say, my mom went to Berkeley in the 60s, oh, just yeah. so you know. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. these movements, they were f- supposedly to bring a... Uh, new focus to academia and a sense of social justice and the usual things that leftists uh, say that they're for. But the thing was, is that they took over some colleges, they occupied the administration buildings, they had a few talks with administrators, they were ushered out, that was the end of it. And it was, it was a, essentially a stunt, and it failed. However, that was not the end of the story. What began then was what is called the long march through the institutions, that the leftists who were occupying administrative buildings, instead they became the administrators, they became the professors, and then they became the tenure committees, and they only hired people who saw their who saw things the way they did. And slowly and steadily, they took over the entire academic apparatus in the United States. And that's why we see them out burning down cities now. What's their end game? You know, it's it's just, you know, what's kind of interesting is, what will these people be like when they grow up and run the world in 20 years? You know, I am glad I won't be around. Yeah, uh, well, don't say that, but (laughs) we're talking about Marxist internationalists. You know, the Black Lives Matter leader recently said openly, we are trained Marxists. Antifa is obviously a Marxist organization that actually goes back with the logo is the same to Marxist organizations in Nazi Germany. I actually first encountered Antifa speaking in Germany and they've now come to the United States. But if they get into power, they will establish an authoritarian Marxist state. And just like other authoritarian Marxist states, they will brutalize and imprison and kill their enemies. And you will say, oh no, that's that's hysterical. Now you're going too far. That will never happen in the United States. Well, look, did you ever envision a time when in the United States there would be people who were murdered solely for their political views 
by roving gangs of people who held the opposite political views. And yet that's happening now. And it's not Trump supporters who are killing leftists. It's the other way around. So uh, that's what's happening now. What is is this going to look like in five years, 10 years, 15 years, if it isn't checked? Well, that's a good question. But what's your prediction? Well, I do think that if Trump wins re-election, and, and, if he and, and by to, the way, what's your prediction about that? But go ahead. <laughs> well, I think it's likely that he will be reelected. Uh-huh. I think that, however, the left is already setting us up for refusing to accept the results, contesting the election, trying to keep it undecided so that if they retain the House, which I don't think is certain either, then they'll be able to put Nancy Pelosi in as president on January 20th, 2021, um, destroy any legitimacy that Trump's presidency would have. But if he is able to withstand all that and prevail, then he's got a very good chance to roll this movement back. And we may look back at 2020 and say this was their high watermark. But then he began to reassert the control of the uh, of the government over the cities in terms of stopping rioting and unrest and so on. And people were rejecting this far left agenda in large numbers. And so by 2024, there might be a completely different political landscape. If, however, he does not prevail, it might 2020 might be the last free election that we have. It's been predicted that Trump would be the last Republican president. And I don't know that he's that much of a Republican, frankly. I mean, he he was definitely a Democrat before. You know, he's, he's on the ticket, obviously, but he's he's a different breed. I mean, the Republican establishment, a lot of a lot of them hate him. The party of McCain, of Romney, of George W. Bush, George H.W. Bush, that party, and look how low ratings they got, the, mm-hmm. those who were president, the Bush uh, uh, family presidents, they got very low ratings in the book, Rating America's Presidents. But anyway, they're just internationalists and soft socialists doing the same thing that the Democratic Party agenda is, but only slower or more efficiently. That's all. And so they hate Trump because he represents a real alternative. So Trump might be the last Republican president because the Republican Party might not last. And new party form with the establishment Republicans joining the Democrats, as we're already seeing, with John Kasich and others speaking at the Democratic National Convention, and the genuine pro-American, pro-freedom, America first Republicans joining with Trump in a new party. Uh, Very interesting. So, you know, any other predictions on what's to come? Uh, One thing we didn't touch on at all is the economy and the lockdowns and this this damage to the economy that has been caused. It's the, uh, you know, maybe it's the uh, world's first self-induced recession. Even after inducing it once, we seem to be inducing it again and again. (laughs) Uh, What are your thoughts? You know, it was just released by the Center for Disease Control that actually only 9,000 people died of COVID. I saw other, that. Other, very it, quietly released, by the very way. Very quietly, yeah, because right, it right. destroys the whole narrative. Right. The, in, the, in other uh, words, let's let's just elaborate on that, though, make sure listeners understand what you're talking about. So, you know, they they I believe they say that the estimates around a half a million people in the U.S. died of COVID. But now the CDC has released, you know, they've t- stripped out the comorbidity and the high-risk people. And then they drilled down onto the what they think are the actual COVID deaths. And they're like 9,800. It's what, you know, a, a tiny percentage of what was what's being stated out in the media. And this was just quietly showed up on their website last week. Nobody's talking about it in the media. 
So Maybe. this is not a serious problem. It's not a global pandemic. The whole thing has been probably designed. I don't want to sound like a, a conspiracy theorist, but this is actually the best explanation. Why would anybody be pushing this when it wasn't nearly as serious as they were saying? Why were they inflating the numbers of people who had died and so on? Why were people who had died of other things classified as having died of COVID? They wanted to destroy the economy so that they could be, defeat the president because bad economies generally favor Democrats because people think, well, I need help from the government and that's what the Democrats give. Yeah. So I'll vote for them. Right. I need a handout. The other thing about it, which we haven't seen that much of yet, other countries have seen more of it than we are, but it's going to be the Orwellian world we wake up to that I fear, where now the government has a giant excuse to really intrude in everybody's life, to track their location, to do all of this stuff. And you know what's amazing, Robert, is that, you know, years ago, everybody was talking about the NSA and that, you know, the data center in Salt Lake City and all the intrusion on our lives and monitoring every conversation. Now, nobody's talking about that anymore. It's certainly still happening, but everybody just kind of forgot about it and accepted yep. it. And that's the way it is. And what's the next thing everybody's going to be accepting? Is it going to be just this contact tracing everywhere we go? You know, were you near someone who was diagnosed? You're going to be forced to take a vaccine. Most assuredly, that will be forced. And who knows what the side effects will be. It's COVID-1984. Yeah. <laughs> it's crazy, crazy stuff. In your book, just pick out a couple highlights in terms of these presidents here. You know, you've got every one of them. You rank them. You talk about them. You rated George Bush and George W. Bush very low. You rated Obama low. You rate Trump pretty high. Uh, you know, what do you, what do you think? And, and just throughout history, you know, some of the presidents maybe we don't think about very much. Anything you want to say? Let's take, say, Woodrow Wilson. Woodrow Wilson was president during World War I, and he was one of the first who set us on this internationalist path. When he was justifying our entry into World War I, he said, we need to make the world safe for democracy. And it sounds very lofty, high-minded, we learned it in school, but what does it really mean? If you think about it, it's very insidious that it's the United States' responsibility to make sure that every country in the world has good government, that will destroy us and completely deplete our resources. And it's exactly what we're seeing happen with the American military committed all over the world solely to improve the situation for people in Afghanistan, in Iraq, in Somalia, everywhere else, and not the position of Americans. This is the end point of Wilsonian internationalism. And it's one of the main things that has sapped America's strength in the last few decades, and Trump is to be commended for being the first president since before World War II to start to roll it all back and not get us involved in new wars. And you would think the left would like that because supposedly they're the peace-loving flower children who hate war. Yet, you know, Obama was much more warlike than Trump. Pretty interesting uh, that they give him no credit for that, of course. But that, that was the opposite of, of our first president, George Washington, who said, beware of foreign entanglements. I think right. in his, you know, when he left office, he said that. And so that's when we went the other way and became this kind of international country. The isolationism was totally gone at that point. You know, now we've got what military bases in almost every country on earth, right? Yeah. And the thing is that a lot of these are based on old Cold War models. 
I mean, Trump is uh, pulling some of our troops out of Germany because the Germans are not paying their fair share of their NATO expenses. And he noted quite rightly that we're supposed to be protecting them from the Russians with these troops there, but yet they're dealing with the Russians right. and uh, buying Russian oil, I believe it is. And yeah. so you got to wonder, we're being taken advantage of there, but also what's the point of having American troops in Germany to protect them from the Russians when they're not remotely close to war and the Germans are on friendly basis with Russia and buying Russian goods? The Cold War is over. Yeah. The World War, post-World War II arrangements should be ended. And so there should be no American troops in Germany. At least we shouldn't be paying for it. Because yeah. if you look at the population and the GDP of the Eurozone, it rivals the U.S. It might even be larger. I'm not sure. Why is the U.S. responsible for that? You know, uh, sure, it made sense post-World War II because, there, the, you know, the threat was right there, right? But it, it makes no sense anymore. Yeah, unbelievable. Well, interesting. Um, other highlight presidents before you wrap it up uh, and just anything else you want to tell us? Yeah, you know, uh, one of the recipes for being a good president is throughout history, and I show this in the book, rolling back regulations, lowering taxes, every raising tariffs. Every time it's been done, with only a couple of exceptions, it has made for prosperity in the United States. And that's what Trump has done, of course, and that's one of the reasons why the economy was booming before COVID and why it's rebounding so quickly now. And one guy who doesn't get credit is Warren G. Harding, who's universally considered a failure as president. Right. Uh, he was actually one of the most effective presidents, Wilson's successor, who rolled back a lot of the controls that uh, restrictions on speech and other things that Wilson had put into place during the war. And he got the economy booming again. The roaring 20s were due to him. And so if we follow that kind of program, America always does well. And that's what Trump is doing. Mm -hmm. Give out your website. The website is Jihad Watch because my day job is tracking jihad activity. I've written many books about that and aspects of that problem. That's jihadwatch.org and jihadwatchrs on Twitter. And there is even a Facebook page, but it's so shadow banned, I'll bet you won't be able to find it anyway. <laughs> the, the sensors in the big tech world. We didn't even talk about big tech, by the way, and that's a whole nother topic. You know, I think people need to realize in the in the media bath in which we all live, you just don't know what you never see. You know, the, the old thing I talk about all the time, you can't hear the dogs that don't bark. And you've got to ask yourself, what don't you see? in your Facebook feed? What yeah. don't you see in your Google search results? That's the question. And what you see forms your beliefs. And what you don't see has no chance to form them. America's yeah. over is a free society because they control the public discourse to a tremendous degree. And they are increasingly clamping down on anybody who doesn't, who dissents from the leftist agenda. Right. Yeah, it's uh, it's really scary stuff. That executive order from, uh, I guess, a little over a month ago was a step in the right direction, but a lot more needs to be done. Um, yeah, yeah. The, we talk about a concentration of power. It's like, uh, you know, under the former Soviet Union, we had the TASS news agency. And now we've got a new version of TASS. It's just these big tech companies is basically now the TASS news agency. And it's it's global. It's not just for one country. So really scary stuff that the power should be that concentrated. Robert, thanks so much for joining us. Pleasure. Thank you.
Thank you so much for listening. Please be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss any episodes. Be sure to check out the show's specific website and our general website, HartmanMedia.com, for appropriate disclaimers and terms of service. Remember that guest opinions are their own, and if you require specific legal or tax advice or advice in any other specialized area, please consult an appropriate professional. And we also very much appreciate you reviewing the show. Please go to iTunes or Stitcher Radio or whatever platform you're using and write a review for the show. We would very much appreciate that. And be sure to make it official and subscribe so you do not miss any episodes. We look forward to seeing you on the next episode. Thank you.